Truth Espresso, episode 87. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hello, friends. This is Daniel Minnick, and welcome to another exciting superhero and history-filled episode of Truth Espresso. because this episode is going to be about our favorite big green superhero, the Incredible Hawk. Now, if you weren't a fan of The Incredible Hawk over a decade ago, if you watched the Marvel movies, you are probably more a fan now of The Hawk than you have ever been in your life. And now if you found this episode by searching for The Incredible Hawk and you happen to stumble upon this weird podcast called Truth Espresso asking a very strange question, is Jesus like The Incredible Hawk? You might be scratching your head wondering why anyone would ever ask such a question. Well, of course, the only reason I'm asking this question is not because as a kid I ever thought, hmm, I wonder if Jesus is like The Incredible Hawk. Now, the reason for these questions in particular, in the series of episodes that we're doing asking is Jesus-like particular superheroes, is because this question was actually asked in the past. And I don't mean in the past of Marvel Comics or DC Comics. I mean way in the past. I mean, over a thousand years ago in the past. Well, of course you'd say, wait a minute, the Incredible Hawk didn't exist over a thousand years ago. Yes, but a question about Jesus, if he was like certain things that are similar to the Incredible Hawk, that kind of question was asked. And so in the series that we're doing asking, is Jesus like a particular superhero? It is based upon a question that people have asked in the past. And I figured that a superhero resembles this question. Because when we get to the early church, we study the history of the early church, and when people were arguing with each other about what Jesus is like, there were a lot of strange ideas, and a lot of these strange ideas can be made clear when we compare these strange ideas to superheroes. So basically, people in history would ask, is Jesus like this? And the question back to that would be, well, can that save me? Can that be my substitute? And so in this episode, when we ask the question, is Jesus like the Incredible Hawk? We're going to look at some things that the Incredible Hawk exhibits as a superhero, compare them to Jesus and see where Jesus is similar and where Jesus is different. And then we're going to look at the example, the story in history, where someone, at least by his proponents, was asking the question kind of like, is Jesus like the Incredible Hawk? So, just who is the Incredible Hawk in the comic universe, in the Marvel comic universe, who is the Incredible Hawk? Well, the Incredible Hawk, as a comic superhero, was first introduced in 1962. 
And there were a few issues of this series of comics about the Incredible Hawk until it was canceled the next year in 1963. But nevertheless, the Hawk still was going to make appearances later on and in many different forms and many different issues from Marvel Comics because the next year, the Hawk reappeared in 1964 in a comic series called Tales to Astonish. Issue number 60 of that series introduced the Hawk as the Tales to Astonish would be a split feature with two separate stories and two separate superheroes so basically it was kind of like two comic books in one issue in one volume now this series of the tales to astonish ran to 1968 and then the hawk took over so the tales to astonish simply became the incredible hawk in 1968 And the Incredible Hawk had his own comic series all the way until 1999. But that was not going to be the end of the Hawk. Because a new series began in 1999 simply called Hawk. And became eventually the Incredible Hawk again in 2000, the next year. And then this went on until 2007 when Marvel began a series called The Incredible Hercules. So basically they put the Hulk on the shelf and began The Incredible Hercules, which was about the Hercules we know, the mythical half-god of Greek mythology, the strongman. And in 2009, the Hulk returned in a series called the Incredible Hawk again, which changed a year later to the Incredible Hawks, plural, because now you had the Hawk family. Then the next year after that, being the year 2011, it was the Incredible Hawk again until 2013. And then the Indestructible Hawk ran from 2013 to 2017, and then the Incredible Hawk again in 2017 to 2018, and then the Immortal Hawk from 2018 onward, and we will see how comics about the Incredible Hawk change names and change series over time since Marvel has seen fit to do that a lot with this particular superhero. So, as we've looked over the history of comic books featuring this Incredible Hawk, just who is the Incredible Hawk? Well, the Incredible Hawk started off as an introverted scientist by the name of Dr. Bruce Banner. And scientist Bruce Banner finds himself a victim of some gamma radiation that poisons his cells. And when he becomes angry, some alter ego comes out, this very strong alter ego, a very tall, large, and muscle-bound green monster comes out called the Hulk. And the Hulk used to be gray, and then it's changed his color to green later on. 
and where Dr. Bruce Banner is a very intelligent scientist when he becomes the Hawk, the Hawk's mind is less intelligent but more prone to going on rampages and smashing things up, and the Hawk has the ability to run fast and jump high primarily because of the strength of his muscles. His legs allow him to jump really high, like pretty much jump up to an airplane in the sky and strong enough to smash up buildings. And so what we see here is a superhero who is not always a superhero because Bruce Banner is under other circumstances ordinarily human. He's like a smart scientist human being, but then once the Hulk comes out, there you have what could be considered a divine nature. And so that brings us to how we can compare Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hawk to Jesus. So let's ask the question, how is Jesus like the Incredible Hawk? Well, Bruce Banner is fully human, as I mentioned. Now, apart from gamma radiation affecting his cells, you know, which a human being can have gamma radiation affect his cells too. So Bruce Banner is fully human. And Jesus, as we have contended, is also fully human. So they have that similarity in nature. Both are intelligent and both are fully human. And now, as I said before, if we describe the superhero of the mighty, the incredible Hulk, the big green monster, we can describe the incredible Hulk as divine. This is a divine nature. He has incredible strength that can help him lift heavy objects, break solid structures, and not break much of a sweat. He could run fast. He can jump high. As I said, because of the sheer strength of his muscles, and although Jesus never exhibited superhuman strength like a Samson or Incredible Hulk, Jesus is also fully divine. Jesus has two natures, fully human and fully divine. And so Bruce Banner and the Hulk share the same body. You know, you never see Bruce Banner and the Hulk in the same room at the same time. It's either one or the other. And so, the two share the same body. So, couldn't we then say that the Incredible Hulk and Bruce Banner, we have one person with two natures, right? I mean, have we found our superhero analogy for Jesus? If we contend that Jesus is one person, the incarnate Son of God, with two natures, divine and human? Well, not so fast. When it comes to Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hawk, are we really talking about one person with two natures? Or are we talking about two different persons, like each nature has its own person? Because surely Jesus is not schizophrenic. Jesus is not two different persons. He's one person. That's the incarnation. He took on a human nature. And so, it's the one person who operates the two natures. 
So this is how we can answer the question, how is Jesus different from the Hulk? Now, obviously, as I said before, Jesus was not exhibiting human strength. He didn't turn into a giant green monster anthropomorphic creature who smashed things up. But if we just have the loose comparison of humanity and divinity, we see two natures in this Dr. Banner and Incredible Hulk character. But that can't be what Jesus is like. If we think of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was an inspiration for the Hulk, could we really say that those two identities are the same person? One person takes over the body and acts, then the other person is somehow suppressed or rendered inactive for as long as the particular person who's active is active. <laughs> When Bruce Banner is active, the Hulk is inactive and is suppressed. And when the Hulk is active, Banner is suppressed and unconscious somehow. In fact, Banner can find himself basically waking up to the strange environment of a wreckage and not remembering what happened when the Hulk was in charge. So let's just picture this illustration. If we think of Jesus kind of like the Incredible Hulk, how does that turn out when we interpret scriptures of Jesus acting in his humanity and acting in his divinity? So here we have Jesus like Bruce Banner falling asleep in the back of the boat. And then the storm comes. And then all of a sudden, the disciples are scared and they're trying to wake up Jesus and say, Master, do you not care that we perish? And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets angry and then the the divine nature comes out. And then Jesus stands up and says, Peace, be still. (laughs) And then the disciples say, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And Jesus grunts, the Hulk has spoken. And then, you know, a minute later, all of a sudden, the Hulk nature dies down. And then Jesus is wondering what happened. Like he doesn't remember what he did or what the Hulk inside him, the divine nature did. (laughs) If the Hulk is an illustration of Jesus, then Jesus would surely be schizophrenic. And I don't believe that true Christians would think of Jesus as schizophrenic. That would be a problem. That would be an imperfection in our Savior. Jesus wouldn't be one person with two natures in this understanding, but he'd rather be two persons, like Bruce Banner with the Hulk inside waiting to pop out. Jesus would be a human with his own personhood, with the Son of God indwelling him with his own personhood. So basically, this understanding of Jesus, kind of like the Incredible Hulk, wouldn't be the incarnation of the Son. This would be the possession or indwelling of the Son in a human being. So just like we see the demons in the New Testament possessing people and Jesus commands them to come out, we would see Jesus possessed by God the Son. 
And, you know, we, we really shouldn't think of Jesus that way. He, he doesn't have two persons or he doesn't have the son of God kind of possessing or indwelling a human being. Cause then that would be some way to separate the humanity of Jesus from the divinity of Jesus. And although we should recognize that the two natures are indeed distinct, they're not separated into two different persons. So, as we ask the question, is Jesus like the Incredible Hulk, and why we even thought of asking this question, we ask the question, who possibly taught this idea of Jesus in history? Well, there was a guy by the name of Nestorius in the fourth, in the fifth century, rather. He was a Syrian who was elected Bishop of Constantinople in 428 AD. So we're talking about the beginning, the first quarter of the fifth century here. And ultimately, Bishop Nestorius of Constantinople was only bishop for about three years. So once Nestorius became bishop, he went on a campaign against Arians and Apollinarians. I mean, he had a mind to make sure that only orthodoxy was taught after the first two councils, Nicaea and Constantinople, and the problems of Arianism and Apollinarianism. Nestorius wanted to make sure that we understood Jesus had two complete and distinct natures that were fully intact. The Apollinarians reduced the humanity of Jesus and replaced the mind with the divine mind of the Logos, and the Arians compromised the full deity of Jesus by making him a creature. And so Nestorius was very careful to make sure that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. And now a little background to this time in history. Remember, this is a few decades after the Council of Constantinople that ultimately, finally, repeatedly condemned Arianism and also condemned Apollinarianism. And the School of Alexandria, which remember, Alexander of Alexandria and Athanasius of Alexandria, was now healing from the Arian controversy, and this School of Alexandria emphasized that Jesus is one person. His humanity and divinity are united in the one Christ. And there is also the school of Antioch. Remember that Arius learned from Antioch and you had Lucian of Antioch. The school of Antioch was also healing from the Arian controversy. And their emphasis was the fact that Jesus had two distinct natures. They did not want to compromise his deity or humanity. So you had Alexandria emphasizing the one person of Jesus who had two natures. And you had the school of Antioch that emphasized the two full and distinct natures with the one person of Christ. So essentially, these two schools believed the same thing, but they had different emphases. They were trying to be careful about different particulars. And one problem giving the background of this dispute was the recent changing definition of words and how they would be understood in Latin, Greek, and Syrian contexts. 
In Greek, in particular, there were several terms that theologians used to understand Jesus in terms of how he is one person with two natures. Remember, we had ousios from the Arian controversy, you know, homoousios, homoousios, and heterousios. And ousios meant substance. We also had phusis. Or, you know, where we get the word physics from, you know, we're talking about physical, you know, nature type of thing. So, substance, nature. Then we have hypostasis, which is a biblical term that's found in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where Jesus is called the exact representation of God's person, or the character tes hypostaseos, so hypostasis. That refers also to nature. And then you have prosopon, which was a term that Nestorius focused on a lot. And this generally meant person, although different theologians could possibly use this term differently. So for Nestorius, who was Syrian, his struggles seemed to be to communicate his understanding of things using these terms without making other bishops gasp in horror. And one particular dispute when referring to the theology of Jesus was a dispute between Alexandria and Antioch. And this dispute was over how to refer to Mary. Alexandria referred to Mary as Theotokos. This was really a statement about who Jesus is. So the word Theotokos meant God-bearer. So, they were emphasizing the deity of Jesus Christ by referring to Mary as Theotokos, or God-bearer. They wanted to be clear that Mary bore indeed God in her womb. The one who was conceived in Mary was truly divine as well as human. Since Jesus is one person, Mary properly bore the one who is God in her womb. We should be sure of the divinity of Christ from the beginning, lest we be guilty of adoptionism or Arianism. And this is the emphasis of the Alexandrian school. So, the Antioch school referred to Mary as Anthropotokos. This was to be clear that divinity had no origin. They didn't want to refer to Mary with a term that would seem to indicate that she originated the divinity of Jesus Christ. As Jesus is fully human as well as divine, he was truly human as one conceived in Mary's womb. So, according to the school of Antioch, we should not confuse the two natures lest we be guilty of docetism or Apollinarian. And so, you have Alexandria favoring Theotokos and Antioch favoring Anthropotokos. Now, Nestorius, bishop of Constantinople, who began as a bishop in 428, seemed to be caught in the middle of a political theology dispute between Alexandria and Antioch. Although Nestorius himself had been trained in Antioch, He, nevertheless, was trying to figure out a compromise that could satisfy both sides of this dispute. 
Remember that Constantinople was where the Second Ecumenical Council happened in 381, and it condemned Arianism and Apollinarianism. And so Nestorius, as Bishop of Constantinople, where this Ecumenical Council occurred, was especially sensitive to anything that might resemble Arianism, the Thor heresy, or Apollinarianism, the Iron Man heresy. Now, Alexandria had long been a center of higher learning and theology. There was a prominent library there, and think of this, libraries were far from common at this time. So that the fact that there was a large library of laboriously hand-copied manuscripts meant that Alexandria had special clout in the Christian world. Now, Antioch had its own pedigree. Antioch, if you remember from the Bible, was where the disciples were first called Christians. It was the region in Turkey where the apostles themselves established a base of operations. And what about Constantinople, where Nestorius was elected bishop? Constantinople was a city that the Emperor Constantine himself had built, and he declared that Constantinople is the new Rome. It was new as a city for a church with a bishop. Naturally, the bishops of historically significant cities like Antioch and Alexandria didn't really view the bishop of Constantinople very highly. There seemed to be a little political disdain there, but nevertheless, because Constantinople was growing in influence, they wanted to make sure that the bishop of Constantinople was on their side. And now, as we come about 50 years after the Council of Constantinople, we see Alexandria and Antioch arguing over theological terms. Now, since Alexandria emphasized the deity of Jesus and the unity of his natures in his singular person, they favored calling Mary Theotokos. This meant mother of God or bearer of God. Now, this wasn't intended at that time to deify Mary or venerate her. The term was really a description of who Jesus is. It emphasized the fact that the one whom Mary bore in her womb was indeed God. And those in Antioch favored calling Mary Anthropotokos, or Mother of Man, or Bearer of Man. They were afraid of compromising the humanity of Jesus. They surely held to the deity of Christ, but they were afraid that Theotokos might lead to the idea that Jesus' divinity originated from Mary. So obviously, both sides had their legitimate concerns. And Nestorius, being caught in the middle, wanted to harmonize both sides. He proposed the term Christotokos to emphasize that Mary bore Christ in her womb. Nestorius asked questions like, does God have a mother? And could we say that the divine Logos is two or three months old? Nestorius, like the Antiochians, although Nestorius was Syrian and became bishop of Constantinople, Nestorius was concerned with compromising the distinction of the two natures of Christ. He wanted to make sure that deity was fully deity and humanity was fully humanity. 
He was also concerned that Christians understand that the Incarnation did not diminish or change the deity of Christ. So, as Nestorius preached his case and against the term Theotokos, a certain Eusebius of Dorylium kind of did what Martin Luther did about 1,100 years later. If you remember the nailing the theses to the wall of the doors of the church at Wittenberg, Although Eusebius was not yet a bishop, he attached a challenge to Nestorius's teaching to the door of the Hagia Sophia that accused Nestorius of the adoptionism error of Paul of Samosata. Now, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, I would encourage you to listen to that because we talk about Paul of Samosata and adoptionism and the idea of the Logos, the divine son, indwelling a human. And so this seemed to be similar to what Nestorius seemed to be teaching as he rejected Theotokos. He was dividing the natures and therefore the suspicion was that he thought that the son indwelt a human being a human with a human person and thus had two persons. Now, Nestorius wrote to Celestine, the bishop of Rome, to plead his case, and Eusebius of Delorium seemed to have a vendetta against Nestorius and sent him copies. He sent the bishop of Rome, Celestine, copies of Nestorius's sermons against the term Theotokos. He believed that Nestorius's own words were good enough to condemn him. And then adding insult to injury, this was just the beginning of Nestorius's troubles. Cyril, the bishop of Alexandria, was also furious with Nestorius. Cyril wrote two letters to Nestorius explaining how Christodokos resulted in heresy. Not that Mary didn't legitimately bear Christ in her womb, but rejecting Theotokos in Cyril's mind was splitting Jesus into two persons. Cyril believed Nestorius was separating the two natures of Christ to where there were really two persons or what he called two sons in him, a human son and a divine son. Now, Cyril followed up Nestorius's letter to Celestine with his own letter explaining his case against Nestorius. So, Celestine had a letter from Nestorius trying to defend himself, and then letter from Cyril explaining why he believed that Nestorius was a heretic. Now, Celestine, remember Bishop of Rome, then held a regional council in Rome, and he immediately sided with Cyril. He demanded that Nestorius retract his position within ten days or face excommunication. Now, John of Antioch, John, who was a bishop of Antioch and a friend of Nestorius, still nevertheless pleaded with Nestorius to accept the term Theotokos and understand it as orthodox. John thought that Nestorius would not be able to fight against this and he would paint himself into a corner here, fighting over this particular term. John of Antioch wrote Nestorius a letter that urged him to give an acceptable answer showing his orthodoxy in accepting the term Theotokos before the ten days were up. And John reminded him of all the agreement of among bishops that were against him. 
Nestorius, possibly remembering that Arian resurgence and the non-solution of Apollinarianism, felt that he should stand his ground. So Nestorius did not recant, and so therefore Celestine excommunicated him. And now Cyril of Alexandria, who was ever the politician, and he was determined to crush Nestorius, held another council in Alexandria that naturally determined that Nestorius was guilty of heresy. So now Nestorius was in bad favor with the Bishop of Rome and in bad favor with all the Alexandrians there. The Bishop of Rome agreed to have Cyril, the harsh critic of Nestorius, write up a list of twelve anathemas that Nestorius would then be required to sign. Ouch! (laughs) And now Nestorius then, not willing to give up, appealed to Emperor Theodosius II at the time to hold an ecumenical council to determine his fate. Obviously, Nestorius felt that the regional politics were biased against him. Hmm, I wonder why. He had his allies in Antioch, and he wanted some fair representation of of an ecumenical council where there weren't just politics against him. So, the next year, in 431, Emperor Theodosius announced an ecumenical council to settle the issue of whether Nestorius was teaching heresy or not. The emperor himself never actually attended this council, but he assigned a guy by the name of Candidian, who was a count, so Count Candidian, to oversee the council. One problem with this council in Ephesus was that some of the bishops faced difficulties getting there. Different waves of bishops arrived in different times. Unfortunately for Nestorius, his ally John of Antioch and John's companions had a rough time getting to the council and arrived quite late. While John and the Antioch party were en route, Cyril, ever the politician, as I said before, found his way to holding the chair of the council. Most of the bishops present were on Cyril's side. Uh, Cyril convinced the count, who was originally against letting him have that position, that he was fit to leave the council. So eventually Cyril, who was very good, very persuasive, very eloquent, and very good at writing, was able to convince Count Candidian that he was right and that he could lead this council. Now, Nestorius arrived late, and Nestorius refused to attend the council while his allies were still en route. And Cyril used his influence to hire some monks through his ally Memnon, the archbishop in Ephesus, to block Nestorius from having any access to the churches in Ephesus. Obviously, these monks were not the reserved, quiet, monastic type. They were the century-bouncer-thug type. (laughs) Either this measure was to deny Nestorius, whom Cyril considered a heretic, from fellowshipping with the saints, or to prevent him from gathering support when the council was not in session. Now, whatever the case... Cyril was not afraid to use violence to get the result he wanted at Ephesus. 
And as Nestorius attended the council and he perceived that it was stacked against him, with Cyril essentially officiating it, he protested it as an injustice. The council's first session in June condemned Nestorius and his writings and affirmed Theotokos as the doctrinally correct term, and thus marked the end of the Third Ecumenical Council in 431, at least somewhat. (laughs) By the time John and the Antiochians arrived, the council had ended five days prior. Expectedly, John and his allies were furious when they got the news that the council was over and had condemned their friend Nestorius without their presence. You know, they had faced illnesses. They had even seen death among their party in in the process of getting there. They had traveled a long time, apparently all for nothing. They were not happy campers there. So John and his gang decided to hold their own council there at Ephesus. And Count Candidian, the same count that presided over the council of Ephesus, agreed to preside over John's council. Uh, This second but non-ecumenical council at Ephesus excommunicated Cyril as promoting Arianism and Apollinarianism. Even the emperor agreed then at first with Nestorius, but the original council at Ephesus resumed after their first session. So six more sessions of the official council at Ephesus through the month of July in 431 solidified the council's original decree and branded Nestorius a heretic and also excommunicated John of Antioch and some of John's followers that he happened to have left. Now, many of John's followers actually switched sides on him, while he gained significantly fewer from the other side to his side. The Council of Ephesus in 431 also dealt with uh, Pelagianism as a heresy. Now, at this point in history, I have skipped the life of Augustine and his disputes with both the Donatists and the Pelagians. So, basically, according to what history has for us, Pelagius and his followers emphasized the concept of free will to the point that all humans were like Adam and had no inherited sin nature, and that we are all capable of saving ourselves, and that the grace of God was needed only when we failed to live justly, and that the cross was a complementary option when we failed to perfect ourselves to the law, which was always a viable option for salvation. Now, this episode, of course, is not about Pelagianism. It is about Nestorianism, but I figured we could get a little background there because the Council of Ephesus not only condemned Nestorianism, but it also condemned Pelagianism. Ultimately, Nestorius, John of Antioch, and Cyril faced their own exiles, yet Nestorius seemed to suffer the worst among them. Eventually, Cyril was able to return with favor to his position as bishop in Alexandria, while Nestorius died away in obscurity. 
Two years after the Council of Ephesus, which would be 433, Cyril and John reconciled and compromised. So Cyril became a bishop again in Alexandria and agreed not to campaign against the Antioch bishops. And the Antioch bishops in turn agreed to use the term Theotokos as the official term of orthodoxy and they also let Nestorius be their scapegoat. But after the deaths of Cyril and John, this peace would not last long among their followers. Now, those who had allied with Nestorius also realized now that Nestorius was condemned, they faced potential persecution. So they officially split from what is considered the Catholic, lowercase c Catholic, meaning universal faith of the church. So there is to this day an official Nestorian sect of churches. Um, Mostly what we call the Assyrian Church of the East is the official Nestorian branch of Christianity. In fact, Nestorian.org is an official website of the Nestorian branch of Christianity. And the official Nestorians have persisted to make their case that they were never unorthodox. They claim to agree with the Council of Chalcedon only 20 years after the Council of Ephesus that they agree with the orthodox teaching of who Jesus is. In fact, Nestorius himself said that the letter of Leo, who was bishop of Rome at that council, that was read at the council of Chalcedon, presented what Nestorius himself had been trying to teach, but was in fact misunderstood. Indeed, one bishop who was at the council of Ephesus, who was a strong opponent of Nestorius, was a guy by the name of Eutyches. And Eutyches was an Archmandrite who was basically a supervisor among bishops over a monastery. Now, Eutyches, who joined in condemning Nestorius at the Council of Ephesus, would eventually have his own controversy and would become the subject of the next ecumenical council, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. So remember, the Council of Ephesus was 431. And the Council of Chalcedon will be in 451, so this was just 20 years after the Council of Ephesus. And Eutyches held the kind of extreme views about Jesus that Nestorius himself had feared were what Cyril was trying to promote. He thought Cyril was trying to teach what Eutyches eventually taught. And Eutyches will, in fact, be the subject of the next superhero episode. So, from telling this story, it may sound to you like I'm siding with a heretic here. Not really. But, I mean, recently, some theologians and historical scholars are divided over whether Nestorius was truly a heretic or whether he was misunderstood and unable to communicate his orthodoxy correctly. So, Nestorianism is the teaching as described by the opponents of Nestorius. According to this 
teaching, Jesus is essentially two persons, a human person and a divine person. Basically, the Logos of the Son and dwelt the human Jesus from conception to give him two natures. So, Jesus in Nestorianism was essentially like the Incredible Hulk. He was Dr. Bruce Banner and the Hulk in one body. He was schizophrenic. He isn't one person with two natures. He is two persons with two natures. But Nestorius contended that that was not what he was trying to teach, and some modern theologians have started to wonder if perhaps Nestorius was misunderstood. So what we call Nestorianism may not, in fact, be what Nestorius himself taught, because after all, there was a lot of politics, and Cyril of Alexandria was definitely a politician. So, although Nestorius himself may have been misunderstood and may not have actually been guilty of what is now called Nestorianism, this doesn't mean that there are no adherents of this idea of Jesus like the Incredible Hulk. This doesn't mean that there isn't a genuine Nestorianism. So, even if Nestorius himself was not a Nestorian... This doesn't mean that there aren't legitimate Nestorians. In fact, modern oneness Pentecostalism basically views the incarnation of Jesus similar to Nestorianism. Although oneness is a form of modalism or Sabellianism, a modalistic idea of Jesus is forced to think of him either as God the Father animating a body like Apollinarianism, the Iron Man heresy, or God the Father indwelling a full human with his own human personhood. So that would be like a Nestorianism, the Incredible Hulk heresy. And I myself have engaged oneness proponents many times online. I have discussed their ideas of Jesus with them. And I have developed the term Unitarian Nestorianism to describe the oneness view of the Incarnation. Although historic Nestorianism is Trinitarian, oneness, out of necessity, takes a Nestorian understanding of the Incarnation to maintain God as one person and Jesus as two natures. But Jesus becomes schizophrenic with God the Father indwelling him, rather than the Son as the Son, being the divine second person of the Trinity, taking on a human nature without adding another personality. Also, I have one time encountered a true Trinitarian Nestorian online. I argued with a guy who claimed to be reformed in his theology, but he explicitly affirmed that, yes, Jesus is two persons, because one person cannot have two natures, he contended. He divided Christ into a human and divine person. He was truly a Nestorian of the worst variety. In that same conversation, his opponent that he was first arguing with also had the opposite view of Jesus, that the two natures were basically mixed together into one nature, or somehow changed or compromised. So, as I engaged that conversation, I argued against both of them. 
maintaining that the truth of the hypostatic union, uh, Jesus as one person with two natures, demands that Jesus be one person with two full and distinct natures that are not divided into two persons. But the natures are also not mixed together to compromise either nature. (laughs) Fun times there. Yet, basically, the arguments I was giving for the orthodox understanding of Jesus against these two extreme positions were basically the arguments that Christians had to deal with during the 5th century, with Nestorianism on one side and Eutychianism on the other side, and the next superhero episode will be about Eutychianism. So, let's end this episode by addressing the question, what are the problems with Nestorianism? Well, simply put, Nestorianism denies substitutionary atonement, as every heresy about Jesus does. If Jesus is a split personality such that the divine Logos was distinct from a human personhood, then it is as if the Son of God possessed a human from conception, possessed, indwelt, not incarnated. The Son then essentially drove and manipulated a man by living inside him to live according to the law and go to the cross. But if a singular person who united the two natures didn't experience death on the cross, the atonement would not be sufficient. If only a human died on the cross and the Son basically drove him to the cross by indwelling or possessing him, the problem is still the same as with the Batman heresy where Jesus is only human. It's not too different to say whether Jesus is just a human or whether Jesus is just a human with God indwelling him or possessing him. One who is human cannot bear the atonement for all the saints. Whether or not the divine Son indwells him and drives him to do so is immaterial. The divine person of the Son must himself participate and experience the atonement for it to have the quality that we understand that it does according to the Bible. Now, as I told the story about Nestorius, Cyril of Alexandria certainly had his problems as a thug and a politician, but I would say that his theology was correct. He came up with what is called the communicatio idiomata, or the communication of the properties. So, since the two natures are united in the one person of the divine Son of God, the one person experienced fully both natures. We can make doctrinally correct statements that communicate the properties of one nature across the other to the person while maintaining the distinction of the natures. Now, if that sounds confusing, I'll give some verses so that it makes some sense. So, here are some biblical examples. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 7 through 8 say, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Crucified the Lord of glory? If the Lord of glory, just as God in the Old Testament is referred to as the God of glory, the Lord of hosts, you can't crucify God, can you? 
Well, you can crucify the incarnate Son of God. So because the Son of God is one person with two natures, you can crucify the Lord of glory. And also Acts 20.28 says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Wait, how does God purchase something with his blood? How can God have blood? Well, God as God does not have blood, but the divine Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, then has blood. Human blood, but it's the blood of God because the one person with the two natures shed his blood. So this is the communicatio idiomatum, the communication of the properties. You can crucify the Lord of glory. God can purchase the church with his blood because of the incarnate Son, the one person with the two natures. And now Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, who being the brightness of his God's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So you see this description of Jesus as fully divine, even upholding all things by the word of his power. Then it says that he himself purged our sins. So how did he purge our sins? Well, he did so on the cross. Wait a minute, on the cross. So how does God, who upholds all things by the word of his power, purge our sins by himself? (laughs) Well, that's because the one person of the Son with two full natures could be crucified and atone while at the same time as God upholding all things by the word of his power. And so that is the Nestorian controversy. I hope your minds were not thrown for a loop here because we're trying to make sure you understand that Jesus is one person, not two. Now, to say that he is one person with two natures is wholly different from him being two different persons, because Jesus was not indwelt by God or indwelt by the divine Logos, the Son of God. The divine Logos took on a human nature. He didn't possess or indwell what would otherwise be a human being. You can't separate the human Jesus from the divine Logos and still have a human with his own personhood. That would be indwelling or possession, which is heresy, not the incarnation. So remember, the incarnation of the Son demands one person taking on a full human nature not indwelling a human. And so I hope you can then see how the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, is the only way that we can understand Jesus as one person with two natures, because then when we talk about oneness Pentecostalism and the idea of Jesus praying to the Father, language would tell us that the Father and the Son are two distinct persons. So oneness has to explain that by saying that God the Father indwelt Jesus, and there's enough distinction there to have a human person praying to the divine person of God the Father, and therefore you have two persons in Jesus.
But only with the Trinity can you properly have an incarnation because only with the Trinity do you have one person taking on a full human nature without adding another person to himself. And that's the only way that you can even have the term incarnation make any sense. Because incarnation and indwelling or possession are completely different. Jesus is not God indwelling him or possessing him like a demon possesses a human being. There's a difference with the incarnation. It's one person, not another person inside him that sometimes acts and comes out through the same body. So Jesus was not like the Incredible Hulk. The Incredible Hulk or the divine nature of Jesus was not like another person speaking through that body and sometimes coming out and acting to do amazing things and then relinquishing control of the body back to the human person. No, Jesus is one person and the two natures are united in that one person and that is the only possible way that we could have substitutionary atonement. And now, stay tuned for the next episode of this series where we discuss the other extreme, Eutychianism. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 